Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1135. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, though we'll be exploring the surrounding context, though our focus will be here. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this guiding light in a world of darkness, for helping us see what is right in a world that has determined that there is no right answer to this question. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and understand what you would have for us in this matter. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Sunday we are resuming our final entry in our series on marriage. We have been in the midst of Ephesians, and this gave us an opportunity in its household code to take a look at what marriage is and how it works. We saw in our first sermon on this topic as to what marriage was. Where did it come from? That this was God's idea for the world, and that if we were going to participate in this institution, then we would need to know how it works. We saw in the following two entries what it meant to be a wife, what it meant to be a husband, and the duties, responsibilities, and joys that accompanied each of those roles and responsibilities. Then we saw, even though it looked like it was an Easter break, it was a cleverly disguised sermon on marriage in showing what it meant for Christ to love the church. We saw on Palm Sunday what this meant for Jesus coming as our king, And then we saw over the Holy Week service that he was also a servant and that he loved us with a sacrificial love and that this was the backdrop for husbands loving their wives. And now we come to this final topic of sex and sexuality. The reason why I have included this is I was debating as to whether or not, uh, but this is the only context in which sexual relations are allowed, that this is marriage, that this makes an important link into this. So it is worth our talking about and worth addressing, because God cares about what we do with our bodies. Our bodies are God's creation, something that he actually prizes, and we're too quick to toss our bodies aside and thinking that the only thing that's important is our soul, the spiritual side makes us sound very holy when we don't care about our bodies, but that's more of Greek thinking. That's not biblical thinking. We are a soul and a body 
completely intertwined together. And the happenings of one has effects on the other. This is something that we need to address and is what we use in our sexual activities. We see plenty of sin and rebellion with this in our culture. It's become something almost defining of our country is sexual tolerance and anything goes. But that's not what the Bible allows for. And the Bible gives us something much more beautiful and has confined it to marriage. Now, before we begin, I know this is a very sensitive topic. I know that not everyone has had a good relationship with this. In fact, if statistics are true, man or woman, about a quarter of the people assembled here in this building have been abused in some way. I want to be sensitive to that. But what I do want to show you is that there is hope for healing. In my research for this message, I've come across many accounts of couples who have had to go through many difficult, horrible things, but that through a proper understanding of what the Lord has for this have found hope and healing. And I hope that you can begin that journey here with us today. We're going to be looking at two points as we examine this passage. The first is that your body belongs to God. Your body belongs to God and that the things that you do with it are to be in conformity to God's commands, even in marriage. And the second point is that your body belongs to your spouse. And we'll unpack what that means. There's unfortunately been a lot of well-intentioned teaching that has been either applied applied incorrectly or was applied insensitively. And what we want to do is we look into this passage and we want to be very precise. This is not because what God says is unclear. It's really not. But our sinful hearts are very quick to turn whatever opportunity we can to find sin. And that's what we want to avoid and to speak precisely to it. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 and we'll notice that this passage does not drop in from nowhere. There is a context in which this passage sits. And the first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think the relevant portion for this is begins in verse 9. Here, Paul is listing out the, the stakes for what we do with our bodies. And he's quite clear about this. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Just a little bit further back. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's very clear on that, isn't he? All of these things, if this is the defining practice of our lives, then we're missing the kingdom of God. We're not saved. We're not Christians. Now, this does not mean that if this is a struggle against in your life, that this means that you're not a Christian. No, no. The Christian is one who struggles against these things, not what makes an identity out of them. Rosaria Butterfield had said, too often we look at our sin as something that we would uh, put in a selfie camera instead of a crosshair. This is something that when we find sin in our lives, we are trying to kill it, hunt it down. And that's what we see here in verse 11. It's what Paul gives. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These things are great sins. And so often we will emphasize the homosexuality and skip over the greedy. Those things, too, are disqualifiers. But what we want to find, we don't want to stay in verses 9 and 10. We want to look with hope at verse 11. That even those that were caught in these things, that felt like this was a part of who they were, to use the modern parlance, that they were born this way, but that Jesus gives hope that you don't have to stay that way. That there can be sanctification, that there can be deliverance. Now, the Corinthians, here, as we continue in verse 12, you'll notice that there are that the ESV puts things in quotations. This is very helpful. What this is saying is this is separating out Paul's words and is telling us what the Corinthians were thinking. What was the dominant philosophy at the time? And here they will have the things in quotations and then Paul's rebuttal of that statement. So here the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful for me, meaning I'm not under God's law anymore. I can do whatever I want. And then Paul responds, not all things are helpful. We can't just look back at these things and say that we're allowed to do them. That's not the case. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Then he goes on here into verse 13. Here the Corinthians get philosophical. As they say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And I think actually the quotation following another scholar, I think should continue all the way to the end of the sentence. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And hear what I think the Corinthians are saying here. Follow their argument. They're like, okay, well, the stomach was designed to consume food. If we're hungry, we feed it. Why not apply that logic to all the rest of our bodily functions? If we feel the desire for sex, we should just fulfill it in any way that our body pushes us to do so. And the reasoning continues in the latter part of the sentence. That's why I think this is actually should be included here under the quote. It says, and God will destroy both one and the other anyway. Our bodies are going to be burned up. They're going to be buried in the ground. They're going to decompose. Who cares what we do with our body? Paul doesn't answer it that way. He continues and points out that they have one thing right, but they're missing the application. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's why I think that actually should include in that portion. Here, Paul goes on, the body is not going to be ultimately destroyed. It's going to be raised again. God does care about what you're doing with your body. And yes, stomach is meant for food, but even that has its limitations, doesn't it? The Bible warns against gluttony. And the same thing here for the the sexual part of our bodies. These are meant for God's glory, not for sexual immorality. And he goes on here in chapter 6, where all of these things in which we can misuse our sexuality. And this is honestly a sermon unto itself. So we'll just skip down and we'll jump to verse 20. And here Paul says, For you were bought with a price. Your body is owned by God. So glorify God in your body. And that's what he has for us next. How do we glorify God with our sexuality? 
Then he jumps in here, chapter 7, verse 1. And now the Corinthians have gone in the complete opposite direction. We started out with, do whatever feels good. Nothing's ever new, is it? Do whatever feels good here in chapter 6, verse 13, to now all the way to the other extreme in chapter 7, where it says, you know what? We probably shouldn't have sex even if we're in marriage. It's just too dangerous, this whole thing. Sliding from one ditch to another. We can't relate to that, can we? As always, the Bible has the correct answer for what we're supposed to do. Notice also that what we're not trying to do is find a balance between two extremes. That's actually a terrible way to do ethics. The Bible is not about finding a balance between two things. It's about laying out what is God's plan and following that. It's not trying to live in a balance of two things, but it's trying to obey what God has said for us. So Paul continues on, and he disallows taking a prudish attitude towards sex and marriage. Uh, This is actually something that God has given to us and is meant to be enjoyed. And in fact, this is something that is a gift within a gift. Marriage was a gift for us. As we saw earlier on, this was a cure for loneliness, a chance to bring new life into this world. This is a wonderful thing. And then within that has given a gift of sexuality and sexual union. That this is something that is for us and that God looks favorably on. Look at the Song of Solomon. This is a glorification of this. To enjoy and to praise God for. So this wraps up our first point. That your body is God's. That we are to use it for his glory. That's the point. And now we'll take a look at this second point. And what Paul gets onto here in verse 3. Which makes our second point, your body belongs to your spouse. Now, doesn't it seem like, and it has been used in this way, that if we say something like that, that your body belongs to a spouse, aren't we setting up for inevitable abuse? Is this an extremely dangerous passage and should we avoid using it? Some Christians come to that conclusion. That we will look at the misapplication of God's teaching and determine that the problem is with God's teaching, not with our misapplication of it. Instead, what we want to look at very, very carefully as we see what this command is, let's be precise and let's find out what this thing actually means. So, verse 3. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We should start by recognizing how countercultural this concept was and is. And in fact, when we see cultures in which Christianity has not had a large impact, it is still mostly man-centered in what sex is supposed to be like. Here, as one commentator put it, Husbands and wives are given the, quote, absolute equality in this matter. This is an area in marriage where this is an even playing field and there's no one in charge over the other. But Paul uses these same words for husbands and with wives. That they are, their bodies are owned by the other. This would have been a very unexpected way of doing things as it would have expected 
for Paul to stop in the middle of verse 4. The wife does not, authority have, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So far, no disagreement with the rest of the culture. But when we continue in the same way for husbands, it's understanding this absolute equality is what keeps us from abusing this concept. This is not teaching sex on demand. This is not teaching that one can force oneself onto the other. That's an unbiblical thing. It's also illegal in all 50 states, believe it or not. But what this is teaching to us is that I don't get to use my body in any way that I want because it's not mine anymore. I've given it to my wife. And in the same way that she can't use her body just the way that she wants to because she's given it to me. This is the balancing of power that Paul gives in this passage. So this isn't something we can force one another into doing. But at the same point, look at verse 5, where it says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Here, what Paul is saying is we cannot go on, on a strike in this way. That we're meant to be giving of one another. And that if we are to separate, for various reasons, that we should do so by mutual agreement. By the way, I think the emphasis here is on the mutual agreement. I don't think what Paul is teaching here is that the only reason that you can ever uh, cease from marital relations is prayer. I think things like surgery or sickness or... And, um, any other matter of things in those categories, that we can find this as well. So this is not saying that you can never say no. But I think what this is saying is that for whatever the reason for the no is, it needs to be resolved as quickly as possible so that those relations can be restored. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So we're not teaching that one can simply demand this and have it whenever they want, just by divine order. But that this is something that needs to be not delayed, and that if there is a no, let's get past it as quickly as we can. Let's resolve this as we can. There can be medical reasons for no. There can be emotional reasons for no. And those are just as valid. If there's been abuse in the past, then there needs to be patience and grace in the present and working through this together. Recognizing that even for medical or emotional needs, that these things can go on for years. But it's meant to be a patient, grace-filled walk with each other towards healing. That's what he's saying here. Now, Paul gives us the reason why we want to not be depriving of one another. And he goes on here, the very end of verse 5 that you may come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this verse has been used as a teaching with a subtle threat. It's like, all right, you better satisfy that spouse or they might go out and go sin and, you know, it's kind of your fault. That's how this verse has been used and that is not right. If someone goes out and sins... That is their fault alone. You notice in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve and everyone's all playing the blame game. 
And notice that their punishment, Eve was not punished because she misled Adam. God did not say, well, Eve, because you were an item of temptation for Adam, you're going to be punished with painful childbearing. That's not the case. Everyone was punished on the basis of their own sin. And that's the same thing here. A husband cannot excuse his accessing of pornography because his wife has not been available to him. You don't get to blame your wife because of that. Your sin is your sin. We don't get to blame her. Notice when Jesus was being sinned against, he doesn't open his mouth. This is not saying, well, you can't sin unless someone has sinned against you. Then all bets are off. This is not the case. You are responsible for your reaction. You are not responsible for other people's reaction, even if you have sinned. Then that's your own thing you've got to work out. And I think that's what he's teaching here. Is we don't get to ignore reality. Paul is gives us this reason under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not to say that because that it's like, all right, well, he's responsible. That means I don't have to do anything to help. That's not the case here. We can help each other while at the same time always realizing if there is a sin that has been committed, it's that person and that person's alone responsibility. And we can deal with our own sin. Is it sinful to deny sexual relations constantly for no real reason and not taking any steps to resolve that? Yes. Does that mean that we can blame, you can be blamed for your spouse's sin? No. That's what this passage is teaching. And that's what we're getting at here today. This is something that when we are, when we also, when we look at this, we want to make sure that we aren't limiting this passage to just saying, it's like, all right, well, as long as I've been physically available, that's all I need to do. Here, when we are looking at sex and sexuality, that this is meant to be a mutual giving and a mutual satisfaction. If only one person is enjoying this process, then we're not obeying this verse. There are not only physical, but there are emotional demands to be met here. And both parties need to satisfy both sides if we're really going to be obedient to this verse. This isn't rushing through her part to get to yours. If we're just running in and out of this process with no thought to how she feels about it or how he feels about it, then we're being depriving. This is something to where both parties should be enjoying this. Both parties should feel fulfilled as we go through this. That's God's design. Mutual pleasure, mutual satisfaction, because there's mutual giving. Not looking to this process to see what we can get out of it, what's in it for me, but what's in it for her. What's in it for him of mutual giving? That's what we see here in this. Now, I want to back up and look at this at the big picture. Now, we've seen the details about how this is to work out. Now, let's come back and let's see the big picture, what supports all of this. So if you've wandered in this moment, I want you to come back. Tune back in with me. Because if we don't understand this next concept then everything that I have just set up for you is just setting you up for an eternal power struggle over who has to submit to who in this thing. We have to understand this next point or the rest of this Bible passage is not going to make sense. Indeed, any 
Bible passage is only going to work if you are motivated by the gospel. You have to understand that someone has sacrificed for you. That there is a greater hope that you are working towards than what you can have right here. Because if you don't have that, if you're just thinking, well, i got to get as much as I can out of this life, or otherwise it's just going to be a waste. You will never be self-sacrificial in this. You will never be selfless in anything, much less the marriage bed, if our hearts are not being transformed by Jesus. And that if we do find selfishness, it's not going to be cured by listening to me. It's going to be cured by going to Jesus and saying, I'm selfish here. I don't want to give of my spouse. I don't think that they deserve it, quite frankly. I've been hurt a lot. And Jesus can find and can come to you and say, I can give you healing. We can work through this together. I can work on that heart. I can strip away this sin that's there. That's what Jesus can offer to you. And that of pursuing a biblical sexual relationship is worth it. God doesn't give gifts that are disappointing. When we use God's gifts as they are intended to be used, there is a wonderful source of joy. God is actually quite a God of pleasure. Look at the world that he's made. All the different ways that foods taste. All the beautiful things that we can look at. The sensations that we can feel. All of these things are from a God who loves us and wants us to enjoy the world that he's made. And it's the same thing here. That's not to say that getting to this point because of other people's sin or your own sin is going to be easy or quick. I'm not saying that. I come from a place of tremendous blessing. I haven't experienced abuse in this, but I know some of you in here have. So I'm not going to pretend like I understand what that's like. I don't. But Jesus does. Jesus understands what it's like to be abused. And Jesus can provide you this way of healing. And it will be worth it. We'll take some work. We'll take some time. But it will be worth it. And I promise you, if you have these issues, you're not alone. You're not the only person that has been put through this, this terrible, terrible thing. But this is something that the Lord can deliver you from and that the Lord can bless you in. Don't leave this gift behind. It's a beautiful thing. Don't think it's out of reach. It's not. That he can give you this blessing. So what have we seen here today? What's our takeaway? Our takeaway is that sex within marriage is a beautiful gift. It is God's idea. In fact, one preacher said that aside from salvation, it was God's second best idea ever. Something that he has given to you. It has parameters. This has only been within marriage. And that within marriage, this is meant to be a mutual giving for one another. And that ultimately this points to a relationship that we have with God. This is not to mean that we have a sexual relationship with God. Don't hear that. But what this is meaning is that the sexual relationship is one of total vulnerability. 
one of total knowing. It's not an accident that the Bible uses the word know for sexual relations. It's not because the Bible is prudish and wants to substitute a word. What it's doing here is to say this is a deep understanding of one another. And yet, a giving to one another. That's the kind of relationship that God has with us. He knows us all deep down. All the things that we try to cover up and keep out of other people's vision. We can hide it from other people. We can't hide it from our spouses. We can't hide it from God. But yet, when that relationship is working correctly, even though all the flaws are exposed... We still love each other. And that's the same thing with God. God sees all of the things that you want to hide. But he loves you anyway. Knows you deeply. And loves you anyway. That's what this is pointing to. And is willing to sacrifice and give to you. So that you might be willing to sacrifice and give to others. So if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is. Or you're saying, well, you know, I mean, I've I've been a Christian, but I never thought that it would really apply to this part of my life. It does. I ask that if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not turned from your sin, then I'd invite you to do that today. The Lord can bring you healing from this. He can work this out. Surrender to Jesus. Be another's. Glorify God. Everything will change. And if there are any questions or there's been anything that has been confusing in what I have said here, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You say, it's like, well, that'd be embarrassing to talk to my pastor about this thing. It's like, trust me, I've heard it before. And if I haven't heard of it before, then I can send you to people who have. But this is a worth pursuing. This is a gift from God. It's meant to point to God, and I wouldn't want you to miss it. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you so much for giving us direction in something that maybe we haven't had a whole lot of guidance on. Maybe something we've been too afraid to ask about. Maybe something that we haven't had a good experience with. Maybe something that we have been broken over. Or maybe something that represents the deepest pain that we've ever had in our lives. Lord, I pray that if there are those that are that have had to go through something like that, Lord, I pray that you would give them peace. That you would give them deliverance from guilt. That you would bring them an assurance of the gospel. That in Christ, we're all virgins again. That we are pure, that we are whole in you. Oh, I ask that that would be a reality for them. And for those for whom life has been kind for those of whom who have not had to endure these types of things, then I pray that they would be models that point to you of joy that can be had and that their joy would increase all the more as I see the day drawing near. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.